Good morning, great men and women of God. This last week, uh, my wife and I, Jessica and I, got to sit at a table with three other couples. And uh, after the waiter kind of took our order and walked away, we asked a simple question. And the question was, what do the next 12 months look like for you? And that question carried us all the way to dessert and beyond. I mean, we just went around the table and people talked about jobs. They talked about transitions. They talked about some health things. They talked about some hopes. Uh, they talked about parenting. They talked about their own parents. And just a, a, a time where we, we laughed a ton and we cried a little bit. And it was a night to remember. I really enjoyed it. And I think it's because some of the most powerful stories we ever hear are shared around a table. When you just sit with people that you love, you sit with people that you are related to, you sit with people that uh, you're friends with, and you just start to tell stories. But sometimes the stories are stories of joy, like the time that Uncle Zach forgot Valentine's Day, or the time that Uncle Patrick got in the car for high school without his pants on, or the time that mom got stung by a jellyfish on her honeymoon and dad had to pee on her. I'm not saying that actually happened, but <laughs> sometimes the stories around tables are stories that are hard to hear. Parents telling the kids that mom and dad aren't going to be living together anymore. A soldier announcing to his family he's facing a nine-month deployment. A mother explaining about a new job in a new state that's going to require a move. And sometimes the story tells you something very important about who you are how mom and dad met, the day your adoption became final, or when you began your journey with God. Stories around tables can remind us where we came from, who we are, and where we're going. And to tell the best stories, sometimes it takes a table. And that's what we're seeing that Jesus has practiced in the Gospel of Luke. He spent three years traveling around telling a story, the most important story. And he usually told it around tables. Today in our series in Luke, we've got this meal and then we've got one more meal next Sunday. Jesus is going to tell, tell a tale of love and friendship. It's going to be a tale of death and new life. And as, as he tells these tales of feasts and kingdoms, he's going to tell a story that's going to explain to his followers just what's about to happen to him and how it's going to change everything for them. So I want to invite you to, to come to this table in Luke chapter 22. It's a very famous table, perhaps the most famous table of all. And we're going to join Jesus as he has this meal with us and see how this can tell a powerful story in our own life as well. We're going to jump into Luke chapter 22, and, and we'll pick up right in verse 14 where uh, Luke lets us know this. When the time came, Jesus sat down at table and the apostles with him. Now, when the time came is a very uh, loaded sentence. What is going on here? What brought us to this time? How is this the time? Well, let me back up and kind of explain this for a minute. The way I look at history with God is history is really the story of three different tables. The very first table was found in a garden. It was a place where God would, would linger after dinner with the people that he loved. And they had peace and they had shalom. And there's only one rule at this table. Don't eat without God. But 
The man and the woman disobeyed this. They ate without God. They ate of this fruit. And the table was broken. And we could no longer sit with God in peace and shalom. And honestly, we could no longer sit with one another in complete peace and shalom. We found out we were naked. We found out we were ashamed. We found out we were slaves to sin and to each other. And the effects of this broken table have continued to this day. And people continue day after day to get enslaved. Yet God never gave up. And he's always promised to bring us back to his table. Now, one of the things that he does is God is a master chef. And good chefs know how to give you an amuse-bouche. Who knows what an amuse-bouche is? Amuse-bouche is what the chef brings you out while you're waiting for the real meal. It's a very small taste. It's a one bite. It's an amusing bite that's going to be brought to you by the chef that's going to set the tone of what to expect. For example, here is an example of a mousse-bouche. This is a fried goat cheese stack. Now, for most of you, that sounds great. They would bring this out to you, and, and that's not enough to fill you up. That's not going to be the whole meal. The chef just says, hey, I just want to, I just want to tickle your palate a little bit. I just want to give you a little bit of a taste of the good that's coming. And so here's a little amuse-bouche. And they bring you out this plate, and it's so small, and you eat it, and you look at the plate, and you're saying, are you going to eat yours? And you eat that. <laughs> it's not going to fill you up. It's just a promise of something better. God gives amuse-bouches all throughout the Old Testament. One of the most important ones he ever did was the time that he delivered his people from slavery in Egypt. Through Moses. We call this the Exodus. And to help people remember this promise and how God kind of gave them a down payment, a little bit of a taste of his deliverance, God gave his people a meal called Passover. And he said, I want you to have a meal. And this meal you're going to celebrate all the, every year. It's going to have some roasted lamb, some bitter herbs, and some bread. And every year when you eat this meal, that meal is going to tell the story of my deliverance. You're going to talk about a God who split the seas. And you're going to be reminded that God keeps his promises. But as we just sang a minute ago, God's people are always prone to wander and prone to leave the God they love. And so people of God kept falling into this trap of tabling without him. And they would find themselves farther away than they ever thought from the table, wandering in the wilderness for decades. And yet while they wandered in this desert, God gave them another amuse-bouche called manna. And it was this bread that every morning they would drop down from heaven and they'd have enough to eat. And it was a reminder to them that God is a God who provides. Now sadly, this cycle continues for years and years. People turn away from the table. They go eat from without God. God brings them back. But yet every time he brings them back, they just get this little amuse-bouche. There, there's something bigger to come. There's, there's a bigger promise, a bigger meal. And yet this is what they have. And we needed something more than an amuse-bouche. We needed the meal. And one day a young man shows up. He starts saying very strange things like, I am the bread of life. And then he started inviting those people to the table. You know, those people. People that shouldn't have been there. These are people who are tired of the scraps of spirituality. They were tired of the empty bowls of religion. They just wanted something real. And they started eating with Jesus. And it made some people mad. Some people didn't like Jesus' guest list. People used to say to him, about him, look at him. He's guzzling and boozing. He's hanging out with tax collectors and other, other riffraff. And, and by the way, when, when the Pharisees would insult Jesus by saying he's a glutton and a drunkard, they weren't just making up that insult on the spot. They're actually hearkening back to an Old Testament situation. 
There was a command in the Old Testament that if a family had a son who was out of control, who was unwilling to listen to his parents' authority, his parents would bring him to the elders of the gate of the city. And they'd say, elders, we don't know what to do with this guy. Our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and drunkard. And that was code word for this rebellious kid. We don't know what to do with him anymore. Then the elders would take the son and go stone him to death. Now, we don't practice that parenting principle anymore. But if you want to use that story as, you know, a parenting threat, you feel free. It's in there. So the meaning is unmistakable. When the Pharisees said Jesus is a glutton and a drunkard, what they're saying is he's a rebellious man and he won't respect our authority. And you know what we ought to do with him? We ought to kill him. So every time they called him a glutton and a drunkard, it was a death threat against him. And that brings us to when the time came. This meal is set at Passover meal. It's Passover week in Jerusalem. Everyone is gathered to celebrate and commemorate the exodus from Egypt. And as the city fills with the bleats of these Passover lambs who've been brought in to be cooked for this meal, the real Passover lamb is where? Sitting at a table. See, the garden is the first table of our story, but now we turn to the second table of our story in a little room in verse 15. I love what Jesus says. I have been so much looking forward to eating this Passover with you before I have to suffer, he said to them. For let me tell you, I won't eat it again until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Jesus looks around the table, and here are men that have tabled with him on boats and on beaches. They've walked down dusty roads and eaten food off as they walked. They sat around campfires, and and he says this lovely, affectionate thing. I've been so much looking forward to eating this Passover with you, and then all of a sudden things get south quick before I have to suffer, and then I'm going to tell you this, I'm not going to eat it again. It's a confusing meal. Well, this is supposed to be a celebration of what God has done. What What are you talking about, Jesus? A clue is found in the actual Passover meal itself. Now, remember... This Passover meal was a meal put together so that every element of the meal would remind people of the story of what God had done. If you remember, Pharaoh continued to say no to Moses. Moses would say, let my people go, and Pharaoh would say no. And finally, God's had all he can stand, and he says, all right, here's the final plan. Tonight, the firstborn son of every Egyptian is going to be killed, and that will put pressure on Pharaoh, and he will let the people go. Well, the, the Israelites are wondering, well, how will we make sure that the angel of death doesn't kill our kids by mistake? Oh, I've got a plan for that. You're going to sacrifice a lamb. You're going to take the blood of the lamb, and you're going to paint it on your door like this. And when the angel sees the paint on the door, sees the blood on the door, it will pass over the homes and continue on his way. In this way, the Passover spared the sons. So what we call the Last Supper in this text, we, and you might even have a, a Bible that says the Last Supper. These guys would not have called it the Last Supper. They would have called it Passover. They didn't find out it was the Last Supper until in the middle of the meal. At this meal, every plate reminded them of God's promises and provision. They had some bread. Now, in Jesus' day, they would have unwrapped the bread first before they brought it out. But I forgot. So they had bread. The bread represented the food and provision that they ate while they were slaves. They had some bitter herbs that stood for the suffering they experienced. You'd make your kids take a bite. I don't want to take a bite. Take a bite of this. Oh, that's so bitter. Yeah, that's what it's like to suffer. 
when we suffered. They had some fruit that was kind of stewed, and it was mixed into a consistency like clay. And they said, what is this? Well, this reminds us of all the hours and years we spent making clay bricks for Pharaoh. Then they had the lamb that was served. What is that? Well, that's that Passover lamb that that was killed and the blood was applied to the door. Oh. Then they had four cups of wine throughout the meal. Each one of these cups stood for a promise that God made. So they would take the cup and they would hold it up and they'd do a toast and be reminded of the promise that God had made. Each cup had a meaning to it. The first cup reminded him of the promise that God said, I will bring you out of Egypt. Second cup was a promise. I will deliver you from slavery. The third cup was a promise. I will redeem you. And the fourth cup was a promise. I will take you to be with me. You will be my people. I will be your God. But I will take you away. So this evening was, as we call it, the Last Supper. Remember, these guys, it was just a normal Passover meal. Done this for thousands of years. But then Jesus does something shocking next that changes the meal forever. Look at verse 17. He took a cup, he gave thanks, and said, Take this and share it among yourselves. Let me tell you from now on, I won't drink from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. He grabs this third glass, which represents the promise that God will redeem And Jesus says, we're going to share this, but then I'm not going to drink that cup. I'm sure the other disciples are like, why not? That's that's the most important cup. That's the promise of the future. That's the one we want to take from, and we want to share that one. And why are you not going to drink this cup? You're not going to drink the cup until the kingdom comes. Why? And then Jesus does what arguably is the most arrogant thing anyone's ever done. He took some bread. He gave thanks. He broke it gave it to them. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in memory of me. After supper with the cup, this is the cup. It's the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. Here's what's arrogant about what he just did. Disciples, what does this bread mean? Oh, this bread reminds us of God's provision, of the bread that we ate, slaves, in Egypt. Jesus says, no, From now on, this bread represents me. I'm the provision. When you eat this bread, it's no longer about Passover in Egypt. It's about me. What about these cups? What do they mean? Oh, well, these cups of wine represent the different promises that God made to us that we celebrate back in the past, how he delivered us. No. From now on, this wine represents a new promise. Me. I'm the promise. This is so arrogant. Who is this guy? What gives him the right to change thousands of years of tradition and say, this used to mean this, but no more. Now it means me. Imagine this Christmas Eve. You come in, you're all dressed up. You look so cute. Get your kids' hair looks nice for 10 minutes and celebrating that. And you come in and you sit down and you're ready to sing and, and to celebrate the birth of Jesus. And I get up at the very beginning and I say, great men and women of God, I know you've gathered to celebrate Christmas and the birth of Christ. But I want to announce to you that Christmas is no longer about celebrating the birth of Christ. It's about celebrating my birthday. So let's all sing happy birthday to me on Christmas Eve. Would you do that? No. You would run me out of this place. How dare you? But let me throw this out. What if I died that night and three days later I rose from the dead and came back? Would you sing happy birthday then, maybe? 
Yeah. See, you don't get to make the meal about you unless you are the meal. What's amazing about this is earlier in Luke's gospel, there's this scene where Jesus goes up on a mountaintop and miraculously two men show up. Two men that should have been long gone, Moses and Elijah. And it's Moses and Jesus and Elijah and they're talking. You remember this? And the disciples are like, this is great. We should camp out. This is so good. I'll cook some sausage or whatever. Let's make some, not sausage. They would have made something else. Uh, I'll cook some fish. I'll eat that. They all love it. And, and Moses and Jesus and Elijah are talking. Now, what in the world would Moses and Jesus and Elijah have to talk about? Luke tells us they were speaking of his departure, which he was going to fulfill in Jerusalem this night. That word departure in the original language means exodus. So Moses, the leader of the first exodus, is talking to Jesus, who's about to lead another exodus. But this exodus would also require a firstborn to be struck down. It would also require a lamb to be sacrificed. It would also require blood to be applied. What I'm telling you now is at this meal, Jesus forever changed the Passover meal and said, now it's about something new. From this point on, the meal would mean something different. It used to celebrate the past deliverance of, God, uh, of God's people from Egypt and slavery, but from now on, the meal is going to celebrate God's deliverance of his people from the slavery we have to sin. And it's through Jesus Christ. Go back to the third cup for a minute. If you remember, this was the cup that had the promise, I will redeem you. Jesus holds it up and says, this is the promise. What he's saying is, this is no longer God is going to redeem you, and that's a promise in the past. What he's saying is, I'm going to redeem you. I'm the promise. I'm going to die. My blood applied to you is going to be providing for your sin. I'm going to redeem you. And then one day, we'll drink the fourth cup. That fourth cup is a promise that even though I die, I will live again. And we will drink this together at the third table. Now, before we talk about that third table, I just want to pause for a minute and let that sink in, the enormity of this meal. I'm going to give you a moment to reflect with God on this. When we celebrate the, the taking of what we call the Lord's Supper, we take bread and we take a cup. And what's interesting is we actually eat those. We take them into our life. It's not just something we listen to. We actually eat the bread and we drink the cup. Why? I'll give you a few questions to reflect on with Jesus as we play. The Israelites had a struggle of always, uh, God's people always have had a struggle of wandering and eating without God. What does it look like in your life to eat without God? What's the story of your table? And then by the fact that we eat and drink, what does it mean for you to internalize this dying and rising of Jesus in your life? I'm going to give you a moment to talk with Jesus about that and let him share with you. And then we'll come back and hear about that third table.
I like that third question. I, uh, I came to Christ when I was about 13, and um, I, I think I've done the math. I've heard approximately four trillion sermons in my life. I don't know why. There's give or take a few trillion, but it seems like a lot. And yet, um, even at a young age, the most powerful thing to me was that time in church when I would get a piece of bread and I would get a cup, and there was something, there was something about this. This is different. This is, this is not just listening. This is I'm actually doing something. And um, one of the things I used to do when I was younger is I would actually always kind of slip my thumb inside the cup a little bit. I just, I just wanted to, I just wanted to feel it. I just wanted to. It, it was real. It was tangible. This isn't just a fairy tale about somebody that died a long time ago. It was like this represents something real. And internalizing the dying and rising of Jesus. That's a. That's an interesting question to me. This first table was a garden where we broke the table. But in the second table, Jesus is promising something new. And I think the second table is captured well for me by this story. This story is that I read is that a few years ago, there was a Messianic Jew named Elon Zamir. And he was driving through an Arab village in Israel late at night. Now, he saw this dark blur, and then he heard a thump. He got out and he jumped out and, and looked and realized he had just hit and killed a 13-year-old boy that had run out in front of his car. Now, the Israeli police showed up and they investigated. They discovered the 13-year-old boy was deaf. And so it, he didn't hear the car coming. And they said, well, that you're not really at fault. It was an accident. But this accident weighed on him. And Elon desperately wanted to meet the boy's family and apologize. And he kept talking about that. You know, whether it's his fault or not, he killed their son. He felt responsible. And his friend said, you are out of your mind. You can't go there and do that. The boy's family lives in the West Bank. The West Bank Palestinians don't like the Jews. You walk over there, there's no Israeli protection for you. There's no police escort. But he felt obligated. And he, so he made arrangements with the family to meet them at a sula. A sula is a meal of reconciliation. So he sits down, he walks into this house, he sits down with the whole family of uh, everyone here, the brothers and sisters, the mom and the dad, the extended family of the boy that he killed. And he walks in and sits down and eats with them. And here he tells this story. He said, there were cups of, table that cups of coffee that remained on the table untouched. According to tradition, the father would be the first to taste from the cup as a sign that he accepted this reconciliation gesture and had indeed decided to forgive. The tension in his face cast a shadow on the proceedings. But then at one point he began to smile. And the lines of his grief softened. He looked at me squarely and his smile broadened as he moved towards me. And he opened his arms in a gesture of embrace. As we met and embraced, we, he kissed me ceremonially uh, three times on the cheeks. Everyone began to shake hands with one another. And the father picked up the cup and sipped the coffee. The whole atmosphere was changed. And then the family said this to him. They said, no, oh, my brother, that you are in place of this son who has died. You have a family and a home somewhere else, but know that here is your second home. Can you imagine? <clears throat> That's the story of the second table. We're, we're the ones responsible for the death of the son. And by all rights, the father should not drink the cup, but he does. And we get to eat and drink with God because of this. We have a second home. We have a greater home because of this. And this is why Jesus changed the meal. This table is no, not about looking back on something. It's looking forward to this third table. 
In fact, Jesus goes on in this meal, at that Passover meal, and he explains this table. He says to his friends, you are the ones who have stuck it out with me through the trials I've had to endure. And this is my bequest to you, the kingdom that my father bequeathed to me. What does this mean? You will eat and drink where? Whose table? My table in the kingdom. He's saying, we will eat again. My father will bequeath the kingdom to me, and my followers will join us at the table. Now, he's making some kind of specific promise to the people around this table, but I believe it is also a promise for all those who follow Jesus. This is the table people have longed for since the first table was broken. This is the table that all the amused bushes have been tantalizing us and, and getting us ready for. It's the ultimate meal. This is the table that Isaiah spoke of thousands of years before when he said, on this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations, and he will swallow up death. How? The sovereign Lord will wipe away all the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. This is the table, the third table. A table where there's food for all people, where there's the best food. It's a table where death can't find a seat. It's where tears are wiped and disgrace is not welcome. And where we're going to gather here on the earth with God and together celebrate forever. As we now take the fourth cup. See, there are three tables, the table of brokenness in the garden, the table of reconciliation before the cross, and the table of celebration in the kingdom. And these tables give meaning to all our meals. So how do we practice these in our lives today? Let me throw out two thoughts to you. The first is a question. Have you ever sat at the table of reconciliation with God? Have you ever sat down at his table and wondered, how will he receive me? Is he going to drink from that cup? And you have sat down in a gesture of reconciliation. You've confessed, hey, I am, I am guilty. I have sinned. Only to find the Father say, this is a table of sulah. I welcome you. I encourage you to realize that your Father is inviting you to a table today. And through Jesus Christ, you can accept that invitation. And he will feed you. But a second way that we practice these three tables in our lives today is something I've really come to believe. I don't believe that Jesus meant this meal to be a once-in-a-while moment. Let me explain. Here's an analogy for you. Um, we are about to hit my favorite holiday of all the year. You want to take a guess what it is? Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is the greatest holiday ever. It's my favorite. I love waking up whenever I want to on Thursday morning. I love getting the house ready for guests. I love the smells. I love extra early tastes. I know that turkey's raw, but no, it's Thanksgiving. Let's take a little taste. <laughs> I love our family starting to arrive, and we're laughing, and there's a football game at the park, and then there's food. There's turkey. There's green bean casserole. There's sweet potatoes. There's mashed potatoes. I like to make a big old lake of mashed potatoes and fill it with gravy. And then, oh, no, Mr. Corn fell in. Don't worry. Mr. Big Spoon's here to rescue you, and he eats you, and everyone's safe. I love that. I love having a glass of wine at 11 o'clock in the morning like I'm Jonathan Cleveland or something. <laughs> After the meal, the goal is to have a second glass of wine while I'm watching the Dallas Cowboys up by 14 in the third. And you fall asleep to joy. Then you wake up at 5.30 p.m. and guess what? Got to eat again, right? No, they did not lose. This is my favorite holiday. Why do you have to make it bad? 
the Cowboys have won, and now we're, now we're going to eat our, we're going to eat again. I'm going to make a turkey sandwich. I'm going to put cranberry on my turkey sandwich and dressing, and then we're going to sit down together, and we're going to watch my favorite movie, What's Up, Doc? That's Thanksgiving. Now, let's say that one year, a friend of mine says, would you come spend Thanksgiving with me? Sure, that sounds great. He says, meet at this address. I show up at this address. It's a big building. I walk inside. There's hundreds of people all sitting down facing one direction. I grab a seat with my friend. There's a guy up on stage talking, blah, 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 blah. All of a sudden, a bowl comes by, and I look inside, and it's the tiniest little piece of turkey I've ever seen, and I take it, and I put it in my hand. Then another bowl comes by. It's filled with little thimbles that have sparkling cider in them, and I take that as well. Then all of a sudden, I I, I eat the piece of turkey, and I, I drink the sparkling cider, and I look around, and my friend nudges me and goes, wasn't that the best Thanksgiving dinner you ever had? No. No. I mean, if, if your definition of Thanksgiving is technically a day in which you eat sparkling, eat a piece of turkey and sparkling, well, then, yes, technically we've done Thanksgiving. I remember what Thanksgiving is from this, but that doesn't feel like Thanksgiving. This is why I believe that Jesus at this meal was not giving us a sermon to hear, an outline to memorize, or a book to read. He was giving us a meal to practice. As one guy said, Jesus linked his death to a meal so we would never forget our need for it since we have to eat all the time. Jesus is brilliant. What's the one thing you have to do at least every day? Eat. So he said this, every time you eat, remember me. When I told you I came to faith in Christ, I came into a church that would celebrate the Lord's Supper once a quarter, four times a year. And if you were out of town that one night, that meant you could go like six months without having it. It was a big deal, and I understand the value of that. I don't think Jesus is saying, I want you to remember me once a month. I want you to remember my death once a quarter. I think he's saying, every time you eat at a table, proclaim my death until I come. That's why I've come to believe this, and maybe this is a way that will help you practice table. We tell the story every time we table. Every time we have coffee with a coworker, every time we have s'mores by a fire, every time we snack together after school, every time we after school, every time we grab a beer with a buddy, every time we eat and drink, we remember the story, we tell the tale until he comes. Every time we eat together, we remember the meal that broke us, and every time we eat together, we remember the meal that broke him for us, and then we look forward to the meal and where the breaking will stop and all things will be restored. Whenever we eat, we proclaim his death until he comes. So, we're going to do this next Sunday. After church, we're going to have a potluck. It's not just a potluck. It's not just a time to eat together. It is communion. It is the celebration meal. It's going to be a feast. We're going to mix it up. We're going to meet new people, and we're going to celebrate the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But for this week, how can you begin to bring the table, the story to your table? How can you tell the story at a table? What does it look like to begin to incorporate communion, not just to something you do once every while at church, but something you do at every meal. Here's an idea. Um, many of us will pray before a meal, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's great. It's a thing. But I want to give you a practice to try. What if this week, instead of praying before the meal, what if you did a toast? You raised whatever glass you've got there, a coffee cup, whatever, and maybe you do a blessing. Maybe this blessing is something like this. We eat this meal today because God is good and he provides for us. Maybe you do a thanking. God, with this meal, we thank you for your promise. Maybe it's a toast. Today, may we dine in gratefulness to God. Maybe it's an amuse-bouche where you just say, today's meal is just a taste. 
of the feast that is to come? Maybe it's a question. Maybe you say, hey, today, let's talk about this question. How have you followed Jesus this week? What if we started to tell the story at the meals? See, the real communion, it happens every time you table with image bearers of God. This week, what does it look like for you to tell a story at a table? I want to close with this thought. After his resurrection, Jesus came back and met his disciples on a beach where he did what? He ate with them. He cooked a meal. He cooked them breakfast. He said, Peter, do you love me? Peter said, you know I do. And Jesus said to him, what? Feed my sheep. I think Jesus is telling Peter, Peter, make sure my story gets told at every meal again and again. That's how you feed my people, as you keep my story being told at every meal. And I think that's our call as well as followers of Jesus Christ, that we come to the Sula, the table of reconciliation, but that we're also inviting others to the table of reconciliation. And at that table, we tell the story every time we eat. Will you pray with me? Jesus, you made a meal more than a memory. You, you made it a practice of our lives. You're so wise to give us something that we do daily. More powerful than a, a church service, more powerful than a book we would read. You gave us a meal connected to your death and resurrection. We long to drink the fourth cup with you in the kingdom. This week, will you give us opportunities and will you give us ideas and boldness and and ways that we can insert the story into the meal, whether it's a coffee or a fire or a lunch or a breakfast. Help us to tell your story. And in this way, we eat and drink, proclaim your death until you come. Amen. Would you stand with us? is calling Have you come to the end of yourself Do you thirst for a drink from the well Jesus is calling Oh come to the altar
down before him bow down before him for he is lord of all sing hallelujah christ is risen sing that again oh what a savior join us at the uh, potluck next Sunday. 
Remember, we have a rule here that you don't bring jello with Skittles or whatever you put in it. Don't do that. Just bring good food. We like to eat. We're going to celebrate together. Bring friends if you want. We'll just have a meal, and we will celebrate and proclaim. And so our benediction this morning is a toast. And the toast is this. This week, may you see every table at which you sit as his table. And so as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup this week, may you tell the story of his death and his return.